Hey everyone, welcome to Rajit Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. All right, Garrett, what's up? How you doing? Hey, good. How are you, Rajit? Not bad, not bad. It's, uh, as we are always talking about, super sunny, super nice out today, so obviously both enjoying that, even though we're on opposite coasts, which is beautiful. So yeah, I reached out to you online and you were super nice, uh, nice enough to set up a time to talk. And one of the things that stood out to, to me about you almost immediately is that, as we talked about, went to school in Boston and you didn't study anything relating to the really interesting work you're doing now. So you know, what was that like? What were you thinking in college and, and how did that shift? Yeah, certainly. Going right before college, I got pretty fired up about science my sophomore year of high school. And so I was also playing the cello, as kids do. They have their instrument that they have to play. And But I was very interested in science. And the school choice and application stuff came around. And BU had both a good physics program that I was excited about. I wanted to be a physics major. Uh, and then a good cello performance program. So I went to BU. My first year, I was a physics major, but I was taking elective courses in the College of Fine Arts and Music Theory. I had dreams of being a physics professor. I was like, that sounded like the coolest thing to me. Yeah. Uh, just wanted to you know, be alone with a pipe and be a physics professor. And then I decided, then I tried to really ramp up the kind of double major aspect of it in my sophomore year, and I just couldn't handle it. It was too much. It was too challenging to do. Mostly it was the orchestral requirement of the classical cello degree and mm-hmm. the lab requirements of a physics major. So I dropped physics and kept with cello performance. And then junior year started to fold back in a couple electives. And that's where I was missing the sciences, but I wanted to be a little bit more creative. Uh, I wanted to focus more on like output and building as opposed to discovery and research. And so that was where I saw a coding class and I was like, oh, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. try this. This sounds interesting. And I loved it right away. Uh, it felt extremely empowering. And so that's awesome. So that's where that shift started. And it's super awesome because you're a perfect example of learning isn't really confined to that four years or whatever that you're in college. Certainly. Yeah, no, I... That started at the tail end of college, and it was still only electives. So for junior and senior year, I was building up a handful of electives, but still not a minor. It could be like eight classes. Still wasn't enough for a minor. So I left with a very strange lack. I had more than most people who aren't studying CS in college, of course, but like less than anyone who would enter industry successfully. And I did manage to get a very junior entry-level job right after college. And for the next year after college was basically learn mode, an extended, self-organized, extended study to get up to speed on CS as much as I could. Uh, And my objective there was to be useful in industry. I wanted to get into a job. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I worked six six months at this this firm. I took a couple extension courses at the, the Stanford Center for Professional Development, went to a coding boot camp. And in that year... I packed in a ton of stuff and that is where I started yeah. Apple. That sounds amazing. Yeah. If you're looking at your resume now, you've done so many 
I'm a CS major, like I told you. So I'm just envious of all of the sort of cool CS things that you've gotten to do over. Industry um, has been fun. Yeah. And so that sounds like a lot of stuff. I know a coding bootcamp, this whole idea of coding bootcamps is really revving up. SF has huge ones. And it's yeah, that's of, where I went in San Francisco. Right. I went to Hack Reactor. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is there an application for the coding boot camps now? Or, or was there for the one that you did? Yeah. Yeah. Multi-step interview. Process. Oh, shoot. Yeah. I mean, but it's still fairly low level. Like they're expecting people who, I was very much their target market. People who were very interested in it, who had non-zero background in it, either through some academic study, some professional work, whatever it was, but also didn't have the educational resume to mm-hmm. get in the door, get interviews. And so then right. that was structured just around skill sets as much as possible. Right. The most famous, I started learning about it. Have you heard of uh, Clement Milescu? He's like the really sort of famous. Oh, okay. Cause he, he sort of the really famous YouTube channel, just like a brief sort of introduction to him, even though he's like tangentially related to what we're talking about is he just, he left college. Oh, there's a bunch of dogs in my front yard for some reason. He left college, similar situation as you got a math degree. I was interested in that whole CS thing. And so he literally leaves college and just goes to this coding boot camp. And then six months later, he's working at Google. Right. Yeah. That, that I have friends, like one of my closest friends from Hack Reactor was a math major from Brown. And he just graduated, was like, wait a second, I actually want to be a coder, did the boot camp, and then was just in, mm-hmm. had a great mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. That's, that's phenomenal. I think it really shows you there's a, a particular value to college. Right. But it's not, it's friends, it's relationships, it's clubs, it's professors, it's a bunch of other things, but you don't need college to get a job at Fang or, or to become a software engineer. Yeah. I think that was, that's the surprising point. I do want to comment that of course you at the end of your four years being a CS major will have significantly more optionality in terms of what you want to be doing. The thing about the coding boot camps is they're mostly structured on full stack application development. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to become a great embedded software engineer in, in three months. I shouldn't say that. Maybe there are going to be great embedded boot camps on the way. If you look at things like even if you branch into like machine learning, like Galvanize is a year program. So like these three to four month boot camps are very much hyper focused on mm-hmm. application, full stack app yeah. development. So you'll have yeah. more optionality from that having a CS major. You can do whatever you want. And so you mentioned that you really wanted to focus on creating and, and building, which is yeah. awesome. Because if you create and build something, it never goes away. It, it immortalizes you in some way. And so what was like the first, I don't know, you start coding, you're working on full stack stuff. What's like the cool sort of fun thing that, that you like to build out of that? Ooh, that's a good question. What was the first thing in the full stack realm? Because the first program that I loved what, that I wrote was the second year when I was taking Java, I wrote an activity monitor. Uh, and I thought that was like the coolest thing mm-hmm. ever to see how much CPU, how much memory the computer is using and to visualize right. that. It sounded sick. Yeah, um, that's cool. The lifetime dynamic nature of building web apps ended up being a big draw for me. Mm-hmm. So the ability, like spinning up an application and building chat, and you can do this in very few lines of code with libraries and it's very easy to deploy and all of that. But when I saw two web applications talking to each other, and this was at Hack Reactor, that opened my mind to how 
amazing the potential of the web is and as a platform to build on. And that what that really solidified my desire to be like a full stack application developer focusing on the web mm-hmm. uh, was was that sense of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been almost right 20 years since Paul Graham wrote Hackers and Painters and, and talked about how mm. web-based software is going to be, it's the biggest opportunity, right? All the data lives on the web. There's no, which is unbelievable. So you said two web apps were, were talking to each other. So did that, the coolest thing that we got to do our first year was learning about APIs and managing APIs. And that was the first you start taking an introduction CS course, of course, they have to take you through syntax and for loops and, and, and while loops and, and mm-hmm. just getting used to core computing concepts. But that was the first thing that was, okay, I can take this and, and run with it and do something in the real world. So that was that for me. Yeah. You, you talked about like seeing something that was really cool and that two web apps talking to each other, the, the number of different architectures that are available on the web, it's mind blowing and I'm still learning about them. But my, what I'm interested in is what was the, what was the first thing that you built where you were like, oh my goodness, I can start to do some damage. Or what was the first thing that you maybe worked on that, Hmm. I don't know, impressed you the most? Before, so do do you, are you an iOS user or an Android user? iOS, yeah. Sweet, me too. I assume you've interfaced with Siri uh, before in some capacity. So Siri, Apple developed this API called Intense, Siri Intense. It's under Siri Kit. Uh, and this allows iOS developers to program their own apps against the Siri grammar. So you can say, hey, my app, or instead of, you can say, hey, Siri, tell my app to do said thing. And then it will see if you have a registered grammar on your phone, which is an installed Siri Kit app, and then it will uh, call into your application. Two years prior to them releasing that, I built that with like open source speech processing software from Sphinx, like my own grammar that I wrote up an iOS app. I built it with some friends. And when I could, I guess that was the the most exciting project that I'd ever done up to that point. There'd been a lot of stuff purely in school. And then of course I'd go on to do work stuff, but that was, that felt almost like I could sell it, which was, I guess like, the first, oh, it's maybe useful to other people. And that was the first time that I got a, a whiff uh, right. of the industry. That's awesome. And, and there's obviously the, I, or to me, at least it sounds like there's the identity part of this whole thing at play, right? You go to college and you're focusing on cello performance, which is great, which is unbelievable because you don't, you have some background as an artist now. But it seems, or at least it seems like to me and perhaps some other people, that you change the direction of thinking about Georgia Tech specifically, you go to Georgia Tech and you actually declare a major before you even get to school. And you can change it one time Mm -hmm. at school. People are very much career focused at my school. And you go in and, oh, what are you majoring in? Oh, I'm majoring in cello performance. And so people would immediately try to tie that. And we've already talked about it, learning not being confined to those four years, but people try to square their major against, oh, what am I going to do for the next 40 years or whatever? Mm, Yeah. And how did you think about allowing yourself to try and learn different things, but also what did the conversations with other people look like in terms of this is how, this is what I want to do. This is what I see where this goes, where this goes. Mm. I viewed... So I I am very, I guess, first things first is that I do lead with curiosity 
the the interest to I maxed out APs a year year of college physics. That was my identity in high school. I was the science ate lunch in the chemistry room. That that was my identity uh, mm-hmm. in, in high school. And then it was cello. And now for for many years it's been in CS. But and while those seems blocky, there's a lot of threads that connect those, which we can talk about later. But they're they're they were led by curiosity, and I like to think of them more as like pilgrimages. Yeah. So it's it's a event that I commit to very intensely with the intention of learning essentially and discovery and then that feeds back into some common central source which is me. Right. Yeah, that's super dope. Pilgrimages. Okay. Going religious with my references, but it, I think it's not a I think it's a great it, it freed me. So in the moment, I, I should say that some of this is the dots connect looking back as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, looking forward. And that's where I'll get into to what you what you say about what people, how people reacted, the conversations I had. Like my dad was not happy about the cello performance major. I can tell you that much. Uh, transferring from physics to cello performance. So at the time, it, it looked maybe a little fickle. I would discover something and be obsessed with it and be like, I don't really care about whatever else I was just doing. I need to learn this thing. And uh, yes, but it was, it was driven by curiosity and it ended up being multi-year stints. As far as the conversations that happened, my, my family has always been extremely supportive of me following this curiosity because it, it was a pattern that existed as I was a kid. I would get very obsessed with things. And they, I, like, they called me bubble boy and tunnel vision and all this stuff because I like to block out the rest of existence and focus. That's my happy place. But I do, they usually aren't like weekend obsessions. They're usually like three to four year obsessions. So they, in, and in that period of time, you can, even if you don't follow through on it, you do serious damage against the skill set enough to both learn about that world and have it influence your worldview going forward and also ideally have a skill set that you can continue to maintain and grow. And cello is an example of that. I still practice and play. Uh, I do nothing professional. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's so awesome. Cause I think, so the first conversation I had was with Steph Smith and, and she's talking about, she worked as a consultant, left her job as a consultant to just teach herself how to code. And now she's a writer at the hustle, leading trends.co which does millions in uh, annual recurring revenue. So, and one of the things I asked her was like, to, to me, specifically as a college student, it seems like it's a very valuable thing to be able to say, this is where I'm going. And talking to her, it, it sounded like that question didn't really matter so much because she talked about, she said, I think people see where they are and they think that they've climbed some hill. And if they think they go to start learning something new, they'll feel like they're falling off the hill, that they're losing what they've done so far. Certainly. And she felt like I had to go make that switch and start learning that new skill. And it opened so many doors for her. She basically created her own job at The Hustle. And I, I did listen to that podcast with her. She was fascinating. I loved like the micro, she said micro inflection points as like a trajectory for growth. And I totally agree with that to, instead of like massive steps. Yeah. Systematic I'm, I'm development, so all that stuff. Glad that you are pointing this stuff out to me because <laughs> it's great for the book. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I totally love, yeah, the, the pilgrimage idea because I think if you commit yourself to something for a short period of time, 
then you're just a lurker. And you went past that on all these things. You created something with it. Got into the terrible pain of being a true beginner trying really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's something so valuable about that in that yeah. you have to get used to just being like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Like you're just so embarrassed. Um, yeah. You got to get, yeah. The ego, the ego, you, there's not a lot of room for ego, which is great. You just mm -hmm. have to accept that you are a vessel for knowledge and you exist at some point in time with or without that knowledge. Uh, and your objective <laughs> is to just grow that over time. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. And you're, you, you, you take this cutting boot camp, you spin off very successfully, right? You end up at Apple. So take me through what happens there. Cause it looked like you had, and, and we obviously talked about it and, and maybe this sort of feeds into this whole tunnel vision bubblehead idea, but you worked at a lot of different uh, places after that, right? Three now. Yeah. Three. Uh, okay. It was two, two, two and a half years at Apple, roughly a year and a half at Aircam, which was a company started by ex-Apple people and was kind of poached from Apple to come do that. And now about a year and a half at, at Kernel. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Apple was very interesting. That was my dream job at that age, having come out of that year of right six months of working, the boot camp, the Stanford classes with the grab bag. I knew I had a non-traditional amount or a non-traditional arrangement, I should say, of knowledge, uh, but I felt capable in terms of full-stack application development. And so was able to take the interview, the Apple interview, Fang interviews suck. They're very challenging. They're six-ish hours of rotating whiteboard algorithm, problem-solving architecture design with a little lunch for small talk, but mostly it's just engineering, just a high-caliber engineering test. Uh, and it was for the iTunes department. And what the I2, which was really obviously a great full circle for me. I, yeah. And, but it turns out, so I was, I was extremely uh, happy to be in that organization, but it was actually App Store was because App Store falls under the iTunes org. And so my work didn't actually involve the music player, but it was on the App Store review tools team. Mm -hmm. So back, this was roughly five years ago, iOS apps would take sometimes weeks to get approved. And this would include small bug fixes, beta iterations, and it was really slowing down the entire iOS development industry, which mm -hmm. is a major industry for Apple users. And so Apple founded this team, about 30 people, to solve that problem, to reduce the review time, automate as much of it as possible, and to empower manual reviewers as much as possible where they needed to step in and look at apps. Uh, and so I joined, I got on board with that program and I built the main internal tooling interface for the entire app review process. That was like my thing mm -hmm. there for the first year. Then the second year was more on that team, but shifted to the backend services that did the processing of the application bundles when they were submitted. Mm -hmm. This included everything from like automatically running applications to analyzing screenshots to doing static analysis. Variety. Right. Cool. Yeah. Interesting things. Yeah. I, I submitted an app for, for the app store like a couple months ago and it was rejected very quickly, but Good. then I got feedback early. Yeah. No, it, it had to do with the fact that it was an app to do with COVID-19 and they said, you're an individual mm -hmm. submitting an app that deals with healthcare data and we don't like that. I was like, okay, uh -huh. I guess that makes sense. But it's such a challenging it taught me what a challenging problem it was in terms of you guys have to basically test run the application. Most of these have login screens. So you, you have to 
login, do UI testing, if someone's accepting, right? Yeah, payments, if someone's running ads, there's all sorts of variables going on here just in terms of when I went to submit the binary, there was a whole questionnaire of 12 different things. And they were like, are you using any of these? And I was like, holy cow, what is this stuff? Yeah. You also pointed out the, the, like the web or sorry, the UI scraping, uh, like playing with the UI and stuff. That was uh, my last year there. That was what our team did. We were a subsection of that 30. uh, And that was Mm -hmm. the actually launch the app and actually play with it intelligently trying in an automated way. And that was really cool. Yeah. UI unit testing really messes with my mind in terms of not necessarily maybe some of the work you guys did, but if you're a UI developer and then it's, you run a UI test and it's okay, is this div in the top right corner? Yeah. Stuff like that. I'm just like, (laughs) yeah, it's tough. It's, It's good when you have, you can do like snapshot testing is pretty good for making sure like the compiled styles are correct and don't change. And then you can do like visual regression testing to actually test the end to end flow, but it's still nothing compared to testing a simple backend route. That will always be the easiest. You shoot at a thing and you either get the thing back or not. (laughs) That's yeah, that's the best. We, yeah, we write J unit tests for, for class and it's just nice to see all those little check marks. Yeah. So pretty, (laughs) so, so easy. (laughs) So you, that's awesome. So you, you're at Apple and then you go to I'm assuming you work at a, is Air Max a startup or? Aircam. Aircam. That's that's all good. (laughs) Air Max Uh, the shoe. Oh boy. Yeah. Aircam was, so I don't have my date super right on this, but I'm going to roughly say five years prior to my arrival at Apple, Apple acquired uh, a company called Bursley and that company had test flight. So the test flight app for beta iOS distribution, that was from Bursley. That company was run by Evan and was founded and run by Evan and Ryan Rifkin. Acquisition into Apple brought a lot of that Bursley talent. One of the Bursley managers, and they were all absorbed into iTunes because iTunes covered all the App Store stuff. So one of my colleagues at Apple was one of the Burst, old Bursley managers. And Evan and Ryan Rifkin, now fast forward to when I was there, they decided to start a new company. Uh, and that company is Aircam, and it's a location-based, it was at the time, a location-based photo sharing application. So mm. the idea there, I'm bad at pitching it because it's been a while, but the idea there is if, you know, you and I were go out to a coffee shop and maybe we had a couple of friends with us and we're, we snap some photo of something interesting that happens. Mm. Naturally, the way that ends is we all badger each other. Did you you text it to me. Is it like, do I have it? Is this the right photo of that thing? More known sense, we all wanted each other to have that photo when it was taken. It was very obvious to our mental models that these are the friends, they saw that, so they should just have the picture. So we were trying to solve that in an automatic way where you would have a friend group if you were together and you all turned it on, then all the photos you took would get shared and downloaded automatically. It was good for vacations, good for coffee shop setups, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's what my my colleague left to go do. And that he left after my first year and then a year passed when he was down there. And then he came up and took me and another friend out to dinner and was like, Hey, leave, leave Fang, come do the startup life. And we were like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> that's yeah. That's awesome. I'm actually, I always wanted to to work at a startup and now I'm finally going to get the opportunity to next semester that's and exciting. also not go to school. Wow. Big life I mean, moves. 
Yeah, it's uh, to be honest, online school kind of stinks. I've been at home mm. the whole time. So yeah, I get to see my friends and then I also get to work on something that hopefully hopefully works out. I, I don't want to share too much because they asked me not to, but I didn't sign any non-disclosure agreement, but it's basically a, not to totally just make this about me, but no, no, I'm it's, the fundamental issue they're solving is just saving time and uh, reducing traffic. And the way that they do that is that they offer tolling as a service. So in a traditional way, when tolling is done for the government, it's a really hardware intensive process. You build this horrible, ugly, enormous tolling booth. Someone goes, they pay at the tolling booth, they're allowed to use the road. And so the fundamental shift here is that how about we just let everyone do that on their smartphone instead? And it's less friction. If you find the right price points, you can optimize for the number of cars on the road. Because if you think about how tolling works, you pay the same price no matter what. If you have some sort of model that's keeping track of how many cars are on the road, you can say, okay, the throughput on these lanes is very low. So we're not going to charge people a lot of money to come in. If the throughput's very high, you can increase the price so you can try to optimize mm -hmm. the number of cars on the road so you never get to the point where if someone breaks or changes lanes, it causes stoppages for a couple hours. So, yeah, no, that's awesome. It, it also reduces the friction for adding new infrastructure at entry points that would have required tolling because it's now cheaper and simpler to do tolling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Well, maybe you should work on this instead. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> no, it sounds very fascinating, a worthwhile uh, project for sure. Yeah. But the real reason I was so interested in that is just because I appreciate, like I talked to you about before, is just the autonomy to, to be able to, right, I don't want to make any assumptions here, but particularly for me at school, there's just a lot of drudgery and stuff that you have to go through that I don't necessarily like going through. There's mandatory classes, there's parts that I'm not necessarily interested in. And like you talked about, just the ability to go out there and to create and to build is so nice and so meaningful. And it's something not necessarily the same complaint, but it's something I hear about larger companies too, is that there's a certain level of bureaucracy that needs to be navigated in order to do what you necessarily want to do. So mm -hmm. one of the things I'm wondering about maybe in your experience is just what was the shift from working? Obviously, it sounds like AirCam was five years old at that point. Three. Okay. So it's actually a really, I guess in startups, that's still really young. So I'm just wondering about your experience in terms of how much more you enjoyed or, or what the development process looked like in any differences or something like that were worth mm. you in terms of working at maybe Apple versus working Air at Aircam and Kernel. Yeah. Aircam and Kernel are both, they're both startups. Kernel is nine times as large as Aircam. So it's further in its lifespan. Mm -hmm. uh, but Kernel is about four years old. Aircam is about three. So I lumped those two experiences together for the discussion of startup versus established company. There's more structure. So there's more structure at, mm -hmm. at large companies. And that structure manifests in day-to-day -day life as more business-backed engineering requirements. So in the startup world, you're simultaneously building and discovering whether what you built was valuable. That's happening in real time. Mm -hmm. For a established company, they know in a large sense, and there's a lot of innovation that happens, but it's a different type of zero to one versus end to one. If you've read the Peter Thiel book, yeah. uh, it, it, that, that's really the distinction. It's like iterating on an existing business model and branching off innovations and building on existing systems. There's significantly more structure uh, to that ecosystem than there is to 
finding those both at the same time, doing both of those at the same time. So I didn't, I wouldn't say that I believe that the bureaucracy was stifling. I thought it, it, it was controlling. For example, I, I remember my literally my first week on the job at Apple, I was like very, so we, for this app review, for the first UI I was building for that app review tool, it was, we wanted to provide a way for the app reviewers to write code against a app submission. Mm-hmm. So the app would be submitted, they'd run it through this code the app reviewer wrote, and it said, oh, if it has a bad word in the title, auto-reject it. And I built this really pretty thing where you could drag in essentially a rule from one side into the code editor. And I was I hacked into the, the drag data prop. And so when you drop it, it would actually populate the code. And it was like this really delightful thing that I was taking like the jobs, like surprise and delight, like really overdo it. And I presented it at this meeting and my, essentially my boss's boss, the org direct, the director of that group just was so unhappy with the fact that I devoted any time to something as bullshitty as over the top, great user experience. It's wait a second. We have like actual stuff that we like need to build that doesn't exist if you don't build it. And you just, you just built like a consumer facing, like fun little feature. Uh, And that was in one sense stifling. Like I wasn't given any direction that first week. And what I wanted to do was build a really pretty consumer, consumer like experience for internal tooling. But the reality was that there's stuff that just needs to be done. And so that, that is something that I think comes from the big companies that you don't get at the startups is you get this really defined, often thought out and accurate checklist of stuff that you just need to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is less freedom there. There is less of a sense of impact when it comes to innovation. There is a sense of impact in that you move, you're moving the needle forward, but you don't necessarily feel like you are part, so much part of the creative process sometimes. Mm-hmm. So those are, those, that's something that I think mm-hmm. the larger companies that's a trade of the larger company. That's such a fun sort of thing that you, I can totally get that. It's playful. It's curious. It's, it's just fun, <laughs> but that's but, hilarious. But, but the tool wasn't even deployed yet for the actual app store reviewers to use. So I, sh- I, I misprioritized. Of course, that was my first week uh, on the job. And that, that goes into my, my manager there was, it was also his first time being a manager. And so we, we learned together over that first year for sure. And prioritization as a whole, that's a whole complex topic for sure in terms mm-hmm. of project management. So you, I, I guess part of it is just me projecting maybe, but what, what was your sort of most enjoyable part of working at AirCam? Yeah. That was definitely impact. So when me and it was, so it was me and two other colleagues from Apple that came and joined and, and it was the three of us that were pulled by the ex Apple manager and the three of us, it was just backend web, which is our main, which was our main UI, and then iOS and utility, and that was like the whole company. And we like rebuilt what needed to be rebuilt from what we inherited. We built on what didn't need to. That we, we built on what could grow, and we saw we just scaled users. We saw people using it. We got more people to use it. We were there in more events, and seeing that really, just like seeing someone else open open an app and use it. And be like, that was all me, which was the case for like any web, for the mobile web experience of the web was it gave me like a sense of responsibility and, mm-hmm. and purpose to my work that in building only internal tools at Apple 
I felt a little isolated from. Uh, and so being really thrown now into this person is having an experience that I created for them and for better or worse. Yeah. That was a profound experience. And another thing you talked about this, now you're working at a startup and you talked about seeing the business side of it too. So I'm interested in, did you see the end game? Like how, and, and what I mean by that is just a, a startup has a particular goal. And you talked about this checklist at Apple and you then now make for yourself your own checklist. But you are also... The startup does, I would more clearly state there. I'm okay. just more involved in that process of generating the checklist okay. after the startup. Okay. Yeah. And I don't necessarily know how to articulate this question. I'm just interested. So startups, from my limited experience, they could be pursuing an, an, an exit eventually. They could be pursuing an IPO. But mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. at a more granular level, they could be pursuing like... This is how many users we want. This is what we want this to look like, stuff like that. And, and I'm just wondering how involved were you as an engineer in determining the fate, obviously not- That's actually a good word, surprisingly, fate. Of, of AirCam, basically. Yeah, for sure. I would, so like biological systems, mm -hmm. the first objective of a company is to not die. There's no other way, there's no way around it. The system has to survive. And that's the beauty of it, just like life is the beauty of, of you know, ourselves. At AirCam, we were trying, we didn't have any goal. Of course, in the back of our minds, you do think about what would this company be like if we were to go public and what would this company be like if we were to be acquired by uh, a large scale company. Mm -hmm. But the those questions can't even be accurately asked until you have reasonable product market fit, really. Like you, you have to know you can see it slotting in somewhere and you can guess that it will and predict that it will, but the, you have to prove that's a reality that exists. And that, that happens only when you have users who actually use it and are willing to either pay for it or look at ads essentially. Um, yeah. So at Aircam, we were trying to find what that was for the, the, that year and a half that I was there and they had been working on that earlier. And over time we realized that, it's, it was the relationship between photographers and people that was actually a more, was both juicier and lower hanging fruit in terms of how the software could facilitate, how it could reduce friction of photos being shared. Mm -hmm. We were focused on people to people, but in reality, professionals to people needed some attention. So we, we, again, we weren't thinking super long-term. We were just trying to find a way for this product to actually succeed. And this is also what Kernel goes through. Is we're, we're, we're just trying to provide, expose this technology to people in a way that is valuable enough that they're willing to commit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. something to it. And we did find that with photographers, photographer facilitating the connection between photographers and their clients mm -hmm. at AirCamp. And... Colonel, and it's in the nicest possible way. Colonel, just after taking a cursory glance at it, it sounds like a really weird company. And I, I mean that in the nicest possible way. It's, it's really out there to me. And I would love if you could just talk about cutting what... Edge. Yeah, cutting edge, but also it just blows my mind. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit or maybe try to explain to me and the two people who are going to watch this. <laughs> but if you could just explain what kernel does and maybe talk about what the process was shifting from AirCam to then kernel. Certainly. So 
at Kernel, we build a powerful and accessible brain interfaces. The easiest way to think about what we do. So we do a significant amount of hardware engineering to build these devices, which one can wear, and it provides extremely high quality brain data. And then we have a variety of systems that make it extremely easy to interact with and code against and ingest that brain data. Mm -hmm. So that's kernel. Right. In a nutshell. Yeah. Lots of questions, but yeah, go on. No, I guess I'll just answer your other question briefly on the switch from AirCam to kernel Uh and then just ask all those questions. Um, The shift there. So I'd actually wanted to get into the BCI space for many years. When I was at Apple and Neuralink, Neuralink was leaked initially. Uh, and then eventually the wait, but why article came out, I was like fascinated by that space and I had my eye on it for a while. And then air cam happened because, and I, I was excited to do that. And I was ready to try the startup life for sure. It, but then Colonel did reach out it at that year and a half market at air cam is when Colonel reached out and it was a far too interesting of a problem to, to not accept. So you said brain data, what is brain data? So within the context of what I can say, uh, or should say, I think the best way to just think about brain data is activation in time and space. So some, there is some event happening in the brain, whether that's an electrical activation, whether it's uh, blood flow due to electrical activation, and it exists spatially in the brain and it exists at a specific moment in time. That's sort of a brain data packet. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yeah, immediately I'm just thinking massive you guys must be collecting massive, right? Massive amounts of data just because as you mentioned, there's a time component here. But before I ask you about that, you also said brain interfaces. Mm. So, you know, you're collecting this brain data, as you mentioned, with the hardware that that you guys are building. And then you're exposing that data, communicating that data in a brain interface. Is that right? So we are saying we're trying to reappropriate brain machine uh, interface and brain computer interface to simply, we're trying to reduce it, I should say, to simply brain interface. But so when we refer to the brain interface, it is a BCI, it is a BMI. That is the actual device that goes on the head and has some degree of sensors that okay. reads the data. Because when you said interface, I immediately, I, I thought of like a dashboard or something like that. But okay, that's... okay. That's, that's not a terrible association in that what we're going for. We do want people to think of like, for the first time being able to see their brain data, like that is a dashboard for your brain is just by default, what ends up being the first application that comes from mm-hmm. this sort of technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, we, the interface itself is the whole system. Okay. And yeah, it's, it's such an awesome time to be working with data. And as you mentioned, that's obviously the first mm. problem you can solve. It's like, okay, let's visualize the data and then let's leverage some, the data to create some insights. But what is the target or the dream application for this technology? Because you mentioned having some idea of where this slots in. So are you interested in, right? I can see immediately, right? Medical applications, people wanting to get this for the elderly to get some idea of brain function, but it really, it has applicability to basically anyone just really getting to know more about their brain. So what do you envision or or what's the vision for kernel? So we're trying very hard not to. So as you mentioned, the applicability is, is endless. It's infinite. It's applicable to to all industry 
and it is applicable to any individual for a multitude of reasons. We're trying very hard uh, not to bias. So Flow 50, which are the first 50 devices, kernel devices available to the public, we're trying very hard not to bias who those 50 devices go to. So we're not saying there are, as you mentioned, medical, in entertainment, in personal health and performance, there are a variety of verticals. But what we're, what we've done is we've put the specifications of the device online. We have a full technical breakdown with a professor from BU who is, I believe, head of their neurophotonics organization. And then between those two things, anyone in industry or a person can see, okay, this is what I get from it. This is the power of the device. Let me apply. Mm-hmm. And then you fill out an application, you send it to us and our leadership team, they review it. And we have an overwhelming amount of applicants already over, well over the 50. So we, we will definitely be trimming, but that's essentially where it's going to go. And we don't, and we right. don't want to say, Hey, we hope we want to give 40 to, to entertainment, 10 to medical and 10 to high performers. We don't want to do any forced controlling of the market fit. But don't you, don't you have to, in the sense that you do have to select from your applicant pool. And so I guess I, I totally understand not wanting to bias it because as I was just working through in my head, I was like, okay, medical, but wait, no, it could go pretty much to anyone. And, and, and so obviously I understand the desire to let people make that decision for themselves. And it's also a really good opportunity to see because it's the people that give meaning to the technology, not the other way around. So you want to see how people interact with That's it. Well but to, to some extent, you do have to choose right from those 50 and, and those decisions will influence what it looks like. But it's, it's so interesting that it, it's so interesting that you're not choosing to pursue a particular, as, as you said, vertical and just try to let as many people who want get it right. The, yeah, the goal is 50. Yeah, next, the goal is that everyone can buy one. And then this influence, you're right that we do have influence on these first 50 and that does have rippling effects. And we, the the leadership team that is involved with selecting the applicants Mm -hmm. uh, is extraordinarily thoughtful about everything that you just mentioned in terms of how it influences the market, the truth of the fact that we are selecting initial, our initial selections will matter for the market. That being said, we are trying to get this product fully to market very quickly. And so these first 50 aren't meant to be necessarily lasting decisions that restrict and empower one vertical over other ones, but rather a way for us to gather feedback, essentially. We want to see people, this device works, this device gets great neural signal, this device is extremely accessible, and it's, it's an extreme step forward on multiple fronts. And so we just want to see people who know what they're doing, who've exi- who've used existing near infrared spectroscopy devices to do hemodynamic readings of the brain, people who know what that ecosystem is like to use this technology and then realize how much better it is. And then tell us why it's so much better and ideally we see insights. Mm-hmm. Have you used one? I have. Ah, there we go. <laughs> what was it? What was it what was it like, I guess, for the first I'm assuming it was your first time. It was, so I'd had an MRI before, but I'd never had, I'd never put on like EEG and I'd never, yeah, I'd never put on anything, any sort of like helmet. It was certainly an intense experience. And so it was very comfortable and our lab technicians are phenomenal. 
And obviously I know a lot about the system. Don't push me too much on the science, the engineering and the software. And I understand how it all works, but still to sit down and be like, all right, it's time to read my brain was a sort of, it was a profoundly new experience and it was cool. It was special. It was insightful. I, I bet uh, what, this isn't a question I even expect you to be able to answer, but what is, what is one question you can see yourself using this technology to answer about your brain? Do you have a, mm-hmm. a question like that? Yeah, certainly. So the brain, I, I'd be very interested in sim- very simple things like cognitive performance and creative output. If I could track in any way, if I could correlate in any way, behaviors and diet, exercise, a variety of things to work schedule, all things to those factors and just see a daily wake up and just look and see, hey, today I'm going to be exceptionally creative. Don't touch anything analytical. That would inform my existence pretty significantly. Yeah. I guess the question would be, how dumb am I today? Is the one I would ask. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. This is crazy. This is really messing with me. So you have this thing and I mean, obviously it takes into like science a little bit to catch up with intuition. So I'm, I'm sure there's all sorts of interesting connections you guys can make between right current advice that there is out there already. I don't know, an apple a day or, or wake up early or something like that. And then there's all sorts of interesting tests you could run. It's like, all right, how does my brain feel about this? Yeah, but, uh, for sure. And some of that, just really quick, some of that is right. The you can observe behaviors, and you can also ask subjects, excuse me, people to report on the health of their brain, what they think their mental state is. Do they think they're in a great cognitive state, in a very creative state, whatever? But those are both behavior is indirect and can be influenced by other things. And then self analysis has actually been proven to be extremely inaccurate. So actually being able to read the brain there will validate right. uh, those things that you were saying and or disprove some of them. Right. Yeah. Like how, yeah, that's such a great question. How good do people think their brain is doing or how good do people think they're feeling versus what their brain is actually saying? Mm-hmm. And it's not great. They've already done, they've already uh-huh. done studies on that. Cause we have neuroimaging, right? The, yeah. the neuroimaging field exists and is, widespread and used and, and saves lives and gives insight and informs industry and all that stuff that this, there is a humongous layer of neurotechnology that is out there. It is just roughly what the IBM mainframes were. It's like they are extraordinarily expensive, extraordinarily large, yeah. or they're like really cheap and, and fragile and you don't get anything useful for it. So kernel is a very much a, a miniaturization of the mainframe similar to the iPhone. Right. Yeah. It's the personal computer of <laughs> brain of the brain. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, yeah. And we talked about this before being comfortable, not knowing where you're going, but what have you thought about in terms of the future of kernel and also in terms of your, I, I'm not saying you necessarily go into experiences thinking, what can I get out of it? but I'm sure you certainly think about how can I make the most of my time here? And what do you think about in terms of your future at Kernel, but also right the future of Kernel? Because both of those sound very exciting, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, I certainly, I'll start with Kernel because Kernel is certainly greater than myself. They, uh, we, Kernel, I think has the potential to be really a next Apple. 
next fang fang i could see a k being added there. <laughs> the worst quote to come out of this podcast for me and so the future of kernel i truly think that and i see the path being as bumpy as paths are but at the same time and we are at a frontier and an innovative industry but at the same time hardware companies with supporting software services have come up before that is apple so there's also not a playbook because nothing applies directly but there are examples for us to follow so i think that the future of kernel is our stated objective is a kernel flow device in every home by 203030 um sorry by 2033 excuse me so that's that's an ambitious goal in a little over 10 years to try and have things be just as common as an iphone or an android but that's the sort of stated future of of, of kernel and uh, yeah, it's an unbelievable sort of question to ask. I know I, there was a second part of the question that you were about to answer. So I'm sorry about that. But no, no, no um, it. it's yeah, it's an unbelievable sort of question to answer is like, what does the world look like if everyone knows what's going on with their brain? And we've seen right there's, exactly. there's second, third, fourth order effects that I can't even begin to comprehend the same way there was with the iPhone and, and the internet and just letting people interface with information that way. And it's totally changing the game. And the great thing about it is actually looking inward at yourself versus looking outward at the world. So yeah, it'll yeah. be so interesting to see what the effects of that are. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, that's, this is far more interesting than me. I love talking about the future of kernel for sure. No, what you just said there is, so the way the iPhone, yeah, what the iPhone brought, what personal computing and, and mobile computing brought to the world and to industry and to how people communicate with each other to what people can know and how fast they can know it, how people can empathize with one another, like a variety of like truly profound changes to society. This is an equal scope of revolution from a hardware perspective. And so when you then consider what are the, what are going to be the outcomes of that, like you said, it's so cool that it's in, it's inward focused. Mm -hmm. So we can't know it's not, it might, it, it, it'll probably be a lot of those other things where there's industry created from and services and all this cool stuff. But at the same time, like we'll be making friends it's different when we right. have a brain machine interface at home will we date differently yeah you know, there's there's impacted fairly i think positively uh, but it's crazy stuff right yeah do this actually ties into my answer to the second question oh wait did i yeah, yeah, I am. I am. My internet connection was a little bit unstable, apparently. But go ahead. I can hear you now. Okay, good. Is I came to Kernel because I wanted to learn about neuroscience in the brain. Like I, as a coder, you're always going to be learning whatever you're coding in, right? You're going to get better at your language. You're going to be getting better. You're going to just improve your development skills, your local environment, your editing, your editing capacity and speed, a variety of things. But you're also going to learn osmosis the industry that you're working in i learned more about apps and app review at apple i learned more about uh, photos and photography at aircam and i'm learning more about the brain and neurotechnology at current so the main two things i wanted to get out of coming to kernel which of course since they're for me they're fairly selfish one is that i did want to be impactful in growing kernel to be a phenomenally great company a successful company and i want and I'm committed to making that a part of my journey there. And secondly, it's just a fascinating space 
like it's extremely inspiring to walk down a hall and like bump into a neuroscience PhD and like to have great, to be able to ask questions about the brain and get great answers that it feels like I'm just learning stuff that is very interesting. And that's just a great privilege in a career. Jobs are jobs. And a lot of times you don't get to do, don't get to do what you love. Don't get to be in an industry that you love or are passionate about learning. And I'm very fortunate to be there now at Colonel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I sort of the thing that, that I said before the internet connection just went completely terrible, but yeah, I, oh, I was sorry, just joking because you, you were like, no, it was totally fine. But j- I was just joking because, because you mentioned you were talking about how does that change the way that we potentially make friends or the way that we date. And so I was just like, yeah, do I, do I look at Garrett's brain and decide when to pick a good day to talk to him or something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's very possible. What if your, your Twitter followers were automatically built in order to maximize creative output? Right. Yeah. The thing about all these all this social media is that if they truly wanted to give us control of our experience, then right, their revenue would be cut in half, probably. So it's a remarkable it'd be, tool. It would be a different business model. Yeah. It, and yeah, I think that's a great way to, to look at it and talk about it. It's just a remarkable tool to take control of our lives in terms of how we interact with information, how we interact with others. Yeah. Yeah. We, our brains are being constantly bombarded and controlled and manipulated and often intentionally, most often intentionally and with our consent, right? Like I use Twitter and Facebook. I know the brands and my opinions and perspectives of those brands is being controlled by marketers. Yeah. But I don't know really everything that's happening. I just have a hunch. And that's only for the stuff that I like can really clearly see like ads on Twitter. There's still an unbelievable amount of stuff that happens that I'm not aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so being able to, I like to think of it sometimes as like a noise canceling uh, headphone uh, for the brain where yeah. you get notifications and, a, and an ad and some just, you're just constantly bombarded with things. And if you just put this on, it's a shield everything's quiet and okay, I'm going to open Snapchat and oh, really my creativity just went up, but my analytical, you know, forces went down. I probably shouldn't have done that before I started coding or depending on what I'm, what I'm coding. So that's selective entrance, I think will be a very cool uh, aspect Mm -hmm. of technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was such a great article by, gosh, I can't say his name. It's like Slava Ahmet, but he writes really well. But anyway, the, the point was just imagine a world where your people can send information at you and take control of your brain. And the whole sort of, to give away the whole point of the article was like, he lays out this sort of dystopian looking world. And then he's just, we live in that world. People bombard mm-hmm. us with information and it's a mind control game. And, and we don't really know what's going on. Yeah. Like you said, I know that I see Twitter ads, but there's all these, there's so much information. There's so much stuff, especially online that it's so hard to keep track of. And I think we all think about how do we interact with technology in a way that, you know, preserves our mental health in a way that preserves, right. If I'm, you know, scrolling on Instagram for an hour before I'm talking to you, I'm I'm probably a crabbier person when I'm talking to you. So, right. We got to figure that stuff out. These Uh, things are real. They they are like, yeah, our brains are very affected by everything by the environment. Uh, and we are just blind. It's, it's if we've been eating food for the last 40 years without nutrition facts on the back. Yeah. Uh, it's like all of our knowledge and understanding of like 
how much sugar should I eat like relative or like, how could I possibly build macros in a certain way? And any sort of education on developing a healthy diet for oneself would not be possible uh, without that sort of labeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things sort of making it about myself again, but coming back to what I think about for the book is this idea of creation versus consumption. And one of the best things I had is in, in one of the conversations I had with someone, he presented this idea to me of creation is exercise, right? Social media is eating fatty foods, junk foods, and creation is exercise. And I'm so interested in, in actually being able to potentially validate that with science and seeing, okay, I'm consuming information. I'm watching Netflix. I'm on social media. And, and then I go maybe, and I write a blog post or something and just seeing the effects of, of both of those things. And obviously I think we have some intuitive understanding, right? Creation is obviously exercise. We feel better. There's people that think of the internet as a dystopian place or think of social media as a dystopian place. And Twitter's actually great. I think Twitter's a phenomenal tool, but it just depends on how you use it and how you interact. The answer is yes. Yeah. And so right there, you dystopian and utopian. Yeah. <laughs> The answer is yes. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, ab absolutely. It's phenomenal. To validate that would be huge. Mm -hmm. It'd be motivating too, right? It's, it's It can sometimes be very indirect, the benefits of mental work. We all read a lot of books. We all read you know, self-help, growth or mind understanding books, all of these things, pure knowledge texts, we work, we write, all that stuff. It's it does really quantifiably move the brain forward. And it'd be great to see that, visualize that and track it. Mm -hmm. The last question I always ask people, and you've answered this actually, but the last question I tend to ask people is what excites you the most for the future? The human brain. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I, I talked to you today. I talked to Rahul Rana yesterday, and both of you gave me like one phrase answers to that question. <laughs> what was it what was the other one is that bad you want, you want no that, no that's everything it, it's the simplest it's fine yeah his answer was uh moonshot companies because he's interested in, in hey. deep tech and stuff like that it, it, so actually that sense your answers are very <laughs> we are definitely a moonshot right yeah that that's amazing because he he talked to me not to drag us on too long, but he talked to me and, and he told me about companies that were working on mind control robots that are doing mm. similar things in terms of oh, looking yeah. at I mean, neural signals. Like, and, and exactly. Reading, that's reading the motor cortex. We have, we've done experiments with that. There's really cool stuff uh, to do with completely redefining the way controls work. Like we do mouse and keyboard. That's, that's going to be absurdly inefficient compared to pure neural control. Mm. So I mean, a, yeah, we'll deep Holy future cow. there. Right. I mean, already we see right apps like even like Superhuman, like, all right, don't use the mouse mm -hmm. and the trackpad, use the keyboard and that's mm -hmm. more efficient. And so, yeah, it scales and it's unbelievable to think that we're going to get to the point where we're going to look back at how slowly the information was coming into us, like it was like sludge or something. And, and now it's just going to be a flood. <laughs> when yeah, it really, yeah. Elon said, says this really well, where he, he talks about Neuralink that he believes like the fundamental issue with the human brain is it's a bandwidth problem. It's a data in and out problem. And that's where it's going to be that flood with these devices for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, Garrett, I, I really appreciate it. Probably one of my favorite podcast episodes so far, but yeah, this is super a blast. great to talk Thanks to you. For having me on. No, no problem. Even the fact that you actually listened to one of my episodes beforehand, it, it means a lot. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks to you and have a great one. <laughs> you too. All right. Take care. See you.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care, and we'll see you next time.